Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll open the Father, thank you for Scott being here with us this morning. I pray for his message as he shares his heart and uh, what he's learning. Uh, I know he's working on a book, and you, you just had him speaking at a camp on, on marriage. I pray you give him whatever exact words you want him to speak to us. And I pray if that changes from what he said to the first service, you know who's sitting in this room. You know what's going on. Speak to our hearts. Allow us to sense your presence. R- remind us of your gospel, that we aren't good enough. That the things he's going to exhort us to do today, we can't do. But you've, you've done everything. Your grace is sufficient for us. You've done it for us on the cross. And I pray we go to the cross for strength and for power and for your truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Scott. Hey, um, first of all, just thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Thank you, Scott and Southbridge family. It kind of feels like a little bit of homecoming to get to come back to good old North Carolina again. And, you know, it's 192 degrees in Dallas right now. And so to be here is a real treat on many levels. Uh, Let me introduce you to my family a little more specifically. And so my beautiful bride, Kristen, will celebrate 16 years this September. Twin boys that, uh, that are named Duncan and Drew. I lobbied really, really hard for them to be Tim and Duncan, and uh, my wife was right in that one, as she always is, and so one is Duncan, the other one is Drew. People always ask me, did you actually ever meet Tim Duncan? And, uh, and we passed on campus one time. He was up here, I was normal, and uh, you know, so passed by him once, and then another time I met him at, uh, are there any weight grads in, in the room? Come on, I feel like I'm back in, De- in Texas. At least you've heard of it here. When I say Wake Forest, or like, is that a high school? I'm like, no, it's the best university in the country, but whatever. And so, uh, so you know, so I went to the, the Wake um, Hall of Fame induction. They were inducting Tim into the Hall of Fame. And long story short, I came back for that. That's probably the last time I was in North Carolina. Large, large group of people just hanging out, and everyone's like, where's Tim Duncan? Where's Tim Duncan? And then there's this door on the opposite side of the banquet room, and I look over at the right time, and there's Tim. And so I start hauling, I mean, to to get down there. It's me and about 40 little kids running down there after Tim Duncan. (laughs) And so I run up to him, and my buddy is with me, and uh, I've never run so fast in my life. Like, hey, can I get a picture? Pushing little kids out of the way. And uh, and I get a picture, and I kind of, you know, he puts his arm around me. I'm like, hey, I named one of my kids Duncan. And he kind of smiles a little bit. And then he gets that big bug eye look that Tim Duncan gets and looks at me, and I think they called security on me, and I had to leave because they thought I was obsessed with him, which I mildly am, but I'm a big Tim Duncan fan, Spurs fan, and I have two other children. See, I start talking about Tim, and I get pulled away from my family. So uh, 10-year-old on the outside, Carson, he's going into fifth grade, and then my, our little pumpkin, Lincoln, is going into third grade. He is a, a man-child. He's eight. He looks like he's going to be about 15 this year. He's a large human being. He inherited... Not my skinniness, my, my healthy build, I guess you could say. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so I've been at Watermark since 2002, full-time as a, as a director of marriage ministry. I've uh, been on marriage, the marriage team since 2002 and living the dream. I mean, like every one of us grows up wanting to be a doctor, fireman, policeman, chef, or marriage pastor. I actually got to live the dream out, and I really do love what I get to do. Uh, the more I do this, the more I see what God's word says about marriage, the more I live it out, the highs and the lows. 
the more deeply convicted I feel and the more I believe what I teach in my bones. Okay, this is not going to be a traditional sermon. It might be a, you know, pick one passage and preach through it. I'm not going to do that today. That's what I typically do. Today is more, here's what God is teaching me about marriage. And so I'm going to share four things with you that I'm learning that God is challenging me with. You know, in my 15 plus years of marriage, I'll be 16 this fall. I work really hard on my marriage. I write about marriage. I study about marriage. I am a marriage nerd. And this year I said it's time to up my game to not just teach about it, preach about it, write about it, study about it. But I need to go not just from having a good marriage, but to having a great marriage. Okay, not for my glory, not for my wife's glory, not to brag about it, but because, one, I'm a marriage pastor. I need, I need to lead and teach with integrity. Second, I just want full devotion, and I want to live out what God calls me to in every single aspect of my life. And so this is not just for me. I'm not the only one in the room who needs to work on his relationship or his marriage or her marriage or her relationship. Every single one of us needs to live with full devotion to the Lord. And so the Lord has showed me a couple areas where I'm not living fully devoted when it comes to marriage. Now, 2016 was a terrible year for me. I would say off the charts, the worst year I've had working on our staff. It was the first time I started looking for another job. I was way out of shape. I'm not a picture of health right now, but I was much worse. At the end of 2016, I had some unresolved conflict with my boss. I had this speaking anxiety that, that I still get a little bit, still always feel, but it was paralyzing. Like I got up in front of 3,500 people, the worldwide interwebs as we go live in our service and, and froze. And that didn't just happen one time, it happened over and over and over. And a large part of my job is a public communicator, teacher. And so for me to, to struggle with, with speaking anxiety was a big deal. And so all of that is going on in 2016. I had a job change at the time as well, and so I lost so much of my identity, not because of the job, but because of my insecurities. And I, you know, a friend sat me down and lovingly challenged me and said, hey, we, this is the first time we're having this conversation. In 11 years, almost 11 years on staff, if you don't start to show some changes in the way that you honor God with your body, if we don't resolve this conflict, if you don't get over your insecurities, we're going to have to look for a different job for you. And it wasn't a threat. It was said with so much love and grace and kindness. And so we started working on a plan to help grow those things. And by God's grace, there's been some good growth and development in, in each one of those. And as I worked through those things, I said, it's probably time just to tune up the marriage as well. And so I read an incredible book the end of last year called Cherish by Gary Thomas. And I'll unpack the premise of that and why I think we need to talk about what that means today. But I've realized more and more the importance of not just good teaching about marriage, but good practice of it. And so today, whether you are single, engaged, married, single again, never want to be married, wherever you fall, this is a message for you. If you are a single person in a dating or engaged relationship, if you are not living these things out or trying to grow in them, or dating someone who is, you need to get out of that relationship or hit the pause button. If you are married, these are things that every single one of us ought to be working on. If you are single and never want to get married or single again uh, and have no desire to get married, chances are about 100% that you know someone 
who is, in fact, it's not about, it is 100% chance that you know someone who's married or know someone who desires to get married. And so be a good friend and help that friend develop these things in their marriage. So I remember September 15th, 2001, uh, is the wedding date. My wedding date so was four days after 9-11, and uh, we got married in, in Atlanta. One of the greatest days of my life. It was awesome. And, and you know, reminder of why I love weddings so much. The, the typical wedding looks like this, is that you've got the, the, uh, the guy that's officiating the wedding. You've got the groom. You've got the bride. You've got the groomsmen, the, the bridesmaids. You've got a room full of people. And most of the time, whenever I do a ceremony and when most guys will officiate a wedding, you've got the bride and the groom looking at me. So it's kind of a cruel trick that I play is that they, you know, they, they see each other for the first time when she walks in the chapel or walks in the church and they, they hold hands and I won't let them look at each other yet. And so they're in front of me and they've got to look at this ugly mug the whole time. And so they're looking at me. And then finally at that point when the vows come, I'll say a line like this, with that type of love in mind, please turn and face one another as you share your vows. And so for the first time, they're not looking at me, they're not looking at you, they're looking at each other for the first time. And they're looking into each other's eyes and they're declaring their present love and a future promise of what they vow to do with one another. And when we say these vows, we're saying ridiculous words. Think think with me of the average normal wedding vow. I, Scott, take you, Kristen, as my wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse. Okay, we know what that looks like, the good times, the bad times, the the great times, the really challenging times, for richer or for poorer, no matter what, whether we are in plenty or in want or need, I am going to commit to you for this day forward. In sickness or in health, It's easy to love in health. It's harder to love in sickness, but that's what we commit to is that we're going to be with one another no matter what. And I've seen this sickness thing lived out, side note, very, very well, so beautifully by my mom recently. So my my biological dad passed away when I was six. Mom remarried when I was nine or ten. I can never remember, but they were married for 33 years. He passed away, and my stepdad passed away on March 4th of this year. And uh, so my sweet mama has lost, you know, two husbands that she has loved dearly. And uh, we just got to spend the week together. She is an amazing, amazing human being. I've learned more from, about marriage from her than, than any other book I've read, any other couple. My stepdad about 10 years ago developed Alzheimer's and it got worse and worse as it often does and, and just progresses on. And so at first it starts off by him asking the same question four or five times and then it continues to progress where he can't remember anything and, and soon he can't communicate at all, can't talk at all, can't drive, can't cook, can't help out around the house, keep progressing, can't go to the bathroom on his own, starts getting angry, doesn't know how to express it, starts physically hurting my mom. He would never, ever, ever have done that before but the disease just so rocked, rocked his world and messed with him. And, and my mom loved him so well. She'd clean up after him. She'd clean the bed. She'd wipe his bottom. She would do whatever she needed to do. She loved him in a Christ-like way. She showed me what marriage is supposed to be like. She loved him until the day he died. She did whatever she had to do to love her spouse in health and in sickness. 
And so we also commit to love one another in marriage, that, that I'm going to love my spouse. We see that throughout the scripture. We see Christ-like sacrificial love. We see agape love. It's a selfless love that puts the needs of the other before our own. But then we say this word to each other that I, I vow to love and cherish you. And I realized as I read this book and I looked at these vows, I don't know what it means to cherish. I've committed to my wife that I'm going to cherish her, but I'm not sure what it means exactly. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking through what it means to cherish Kristen Kadersha. And so if you are married, here's what it looks like to cherish. Here's a couple things to think through. It turns marriage from an obligation into a delight. It's when we hold something dear. We have great affection for it. We honor the other person. We listen to them, we talk to them, we forget about ourselves, we take an active interest in what interests them, we protect our spouse instead of attacking them verbally. We work on the things that we're not good at, we respect and value the things that they're good at. We're patient with their sins and their struggles, we show them grace, we live out the gospel with them. Practically, it looks like things like this. When I see my wife, when I get home from work, I've got four boys that attack me at the back door. They jump on me. They want to give me a hug. I push through the madness, the chaos, and I go to my wife, and I give her a big hug. I text her in the middle of the day for no reason. I, I see her, and when I see her in the middle of the day, and I just go up, and I give her a big hug in the kiss, and I give her a kiss. And I don't expect anything in return. I don't expect for her to hug me later that night. That's not why I do it. I hug her because I love her and I cherish her. I pay attention to her. And so this sounds terrible, but, but this phone gets in the way of the way that I lack cherishing my spouse. And so I shut my computer down. I put my phone away. I look at her. I communicate with her. I pay attention, I I notice the small things. This year I've done a really cool thing, a friend challenged me to do this, it's, uh, and I hope my wife is not listening to this because it's her Christmas present, one of them, but it's, it's a cherished journal. She doesn't know I'm doing it. Every day, starting December 25th, 2016 until December 24th, 2017, I'm writing one thing down about my wife that I cherish about her. And so I'm looking for something that's different. I don't, it forces me not to focus on the negatives, but on the things that are extraordinary about her. Both the big things and the little things. Here's what I fully believe about this. She's never going to read it. She can't read my handwriting. I can barely read my handwriting. (laughs) But it reminds me every single day uh, of what a gift she is to me. Okay, well, my tendency, maybe your tendency would be to sit down and let me write down one paragraph or a full page and all the things about them that drive me crazy. I'm doing the opposite. I'm looking for the things that are extraordinary about my wife. Here's a great example. The one I wrote this morning. I'm in beautiful North Carolina right now. It's 80 degrees outside. Last night, Scott and I had dinner. We went outside and I kind of got a little shiver. It was almost like this cool, crisp night, 70-something degrees, and I slept in a hotel room, and I cranked the air down to about 66 degrees last night. It was beautiful and extraordinary, and I slept in this comfortable bed. And, uh, and I talked to my wife before I went to bed. In Texas, it's over 100 degrees out or 100 degrees uh, we have two AC units. One uh, air conditions our bedroom and the office and the bathroom, master bath. The one that, uh, you know, that feeds the rest of the house is broken. So it's 100 degrees outside, and my wife is, 
trying to endure and live in a home with four monster children and uh, who are all burning up hot outside, burning up inside, and my wife never complains or grumbles one time. She makes an adventure out of it. All four boys sleep in our room, and, and it's an, you know, she, she makes the most out of it. And so it's so easy to cherish her. I look for the things about her that are extraordinary. I think about it this way, you know, that, that in the garden there's this man named Adam, and it's Adam and a bunch of animals, right? There's two llama, two zebra, two giraffes, two monkeys, two of everything, two possum for whatever unbeknownst reason to any of us, two possums, and, you know, and, th- and there's one man, one human being. And God, you know, in that, in that moment, Adam realizes that he's kind of lonely. Even though he's got this beautiful relationship with God, there's no one like him. It is not good for him to be alone. So he falls into a deep sleep when he wakes up, missing a rib, and he looks up and he sees a beautiful human being that looks like him in so many ways, but different in others. And he says, there is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh at last. So we got this beautiful, perfect relationship. And, and I don't know what it was like, but it was, it was almost as I envisioned it, almost like Adam is seeing the world in black and white. It's beautiful in black and white. But all of a sudden, it just pops. Okay, things that, that were missing color now are really colorful. Things that were dull and still beautiful now really pop. It's like this video I saw a couple days ago. So I'll, I'll narrate it. So this guy, it's his, uh... There we go. All right. Don't break it. that so it is like life is dull and just a few colors and all of a sudden pow okay everything looks as it's intended and so I don't know what it was like for Adam but he sees this woman and everything is different for him he begins to realize how beautiful God is even more to a greater extent I want to live my marriage that way that I realize just how great God is how beautiful he is and how incredible his design of marriage really is. And so today, this is four things that I'm trying to do that 
will help me grow my marriage and cherish my spouse in a way that I desire and that God would want for you and me to cherish our spouse. And so the first is I've got to learn to deal with my selfishness. I don't know if you ever saw Finding Nemo, but there's a scene with the four or the birds, and they all go, mine, 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 mine. We never have to teach each other how to say mine. I never had to sit down my twins with, with Legos and say, okay, Duncan and Drew, here's a Lego. You're going to fight for it right now, and I want you to reach for it and say mine, and then I want you to reach back and punch your brother when he takes it. <laughs> never had to do that. Okay, we are selfish human beings. We had the twins in 2004. Kristen had them, of course, and I was just there. And so at the time, she's working as a physical therapist before the twins. I'm in seminary full-time working at Watermark. Our church is an intern for about 15 cents an hour and then working part-time as a physical therapist. We have the twins, and all of a sudden we go from having a good income to having almost no income. And so I started doing more PT. I'm in school full-time. We've got two children that we bring into our home who kind of wrecked our world. We didn't know what it was like to have kids and how challenging they can be as babies, not their fault, but just how challenging that transition is. And, and uh, you know, it's an incredibly difficult season in our marriage and in our lives. And one day, for I don't know what reason, I, I always try to think of why were we fighting. I have no idea, but we start arguing with one another. Twins are probably uh, six weeks or eight weeks old at the time, and we start yelling, and it starts going from, you know, from just insults and frustration to starting to be, like, personal now, and there's personal attacks, and then I start using bad words and yelling them, and, you know, I always feel the need to caveat. I wasn't working full-time at Watermark. I was just an intern. Like, that makes it okay. It's absolutely, like, terrible the way that I was not loving her and not leading her and not walking with the Lord in those moments. One of our children was colicky, which meant he cried all the time. And as this argument continues to escalate, at one point, I start banging my hands on the counter saying, my life is over, my life is over, my life is over, my life is over, over and over and over again. And there wasn't in that moment like this profound like, oh, Scott, you're a selfish human being. This is because you're selfish. In that moment, I was right and she was wrong. Side note, she puts child down. She comes running across the room, jumps on my back. I start laughing at her hysterically because I'm like a large dude. I always used to say I could play football probably at the collegiate level, but I chose to be in the marching band instead. And so it's like I'm a huge <laughs> human being. She's not. It's like a fly trying to knock over a gorilla. And as I look back on, on that event, uh, you know, I just go, that, that's not the first time I was selfish. That's certainly not the last time I've been selfish that is when I look back the time I realize selfishness is a problem in my life and in my relationship. And, and I'm not the only one. That's, this is not the time to start throwing the elbows. This is the time when you realize and remember how selfish that we are, every single one of us. James 4, 1 through 3, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The reason you fight, the reason I fight, the reason we fight in relationships, the reason we fight in marriage is not because we don't have enough money. It's not because of the kids. It's not because of intimacy. It's because we are selfish and we don't have what we want. 
We like to think about ourselves. We like to talk about ourselves. We like to get what we want. And when we do, we fall short in marriage and it affects our oneness. It affects our intimacy. One area that I've got to work on my marriage to cherish Kristen is to deal with my selfishness. And that is every single one of us. And so I don't know what selfishness looks like for you, but it might be something like this, that if you've got a newborn baby and it's 2 a.m. in the morning and you're both lying in bed asleep and all of a sudden you hear that shrill cry, that baby needs to be fed and you hear it, but you act like you're asleep. You let your spouse get up and take care of the baby. It might be that you uh, know you have a money problem, but you still want to spend money on desires, and so you give in to those temptations financially. It might be that you know you shouldn't click something, go somewhere, eat something, do something, and you do it anyway because you want to give in to your selfish desires. For me, one of the the most uh, significant ways that I've got to battle selfishness is every single night at bedtime. So I get up early in the morning, I'm like a 5 a.m. riser and get time in the Word or I write or I work out and then I go to work and I get home from work and we hang out as a family and 8.30 comes around and I'm like, I am done with the rest of the world. I need to either you know, work on something for work or write or just hang out with my wife. But every night at 8.30, we fight the bedtime ritual. So every single night of my children's lives, especially as they've gotten older, you know, the, the time changes, But at 8.30, we do this thing called brush your teeth. We put our clothes away. We put our clothes out for tomorrow. And then we actually lie down in a bed and we go to sleep. But you would think every single night, this is the first time ever my children are experiencing this. (laughs) What? I've got to go to bed. Yes, every single night for your life. (laughs) Brush my teeth. I just brushed them a couple days. Every single day, we brush our teeth in the morning, we brush our teeth at night. You can even brush, what? I mean, it is like this routine. And I, I'm, Kristen, you've got to deal, I can't handle it. And like, I fight that selfishness every single day. And I watch the way that she, you know, she handles it. She'll actually turn it, you know, she just Jesus jukes me and turns it into this moment. Well, it's just this time I can get, you know, one-on-one time and we can pray together. I'm like, oh, you're so right, but I just... I just can't deal. I don't want them. And so we fight our selfishness all the time. And so I'm reminded that the only way that I can deal with my selfishness, the only way that you can deal with your selfishness is to become more like Christ. There has never been a more perfect example of what it's like to be selfless than Jesus. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. I see James 4, 6 through 10. I look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that, that even though he was God, he is God, he, he laid down his rights in order to put our needs before his own. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And so as followers of Christ, we are to follow Christ. And so in marriage, that means that I put my wife's needs before my own. I put my kids' needs before my own. I've got to learn how to deal with my selfishness. Second is I want to live with Kristen in an understanding way. So there's a great verse in in 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 is a really good marriage passage at the end of it. Peter says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Let me clarify one thing there. He is not saying husband 
live with your wives, plural, in an understanding way. He's speaking collectively to husbands to love your singular wife in an in a understanding way. And so one husband, one wife. Husband, live with your wife in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. When it says weaker vessel, it does not mean she's inferior. It does not mean she's worth less. It means that she's physically weaker most of the time. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So there is a direct connection here. Husband, live with your wife in an understanding way so that your prayers are not hindered. Some of you are saying, God, you are not answering my prayer. Where are you? Do you care about me or about my life? And it might be that you are not loving your wife. You are not living with her in an understanding way. And so God is not absent. God is not distant. There is a good chance that you're just not loving her in a way that says that you understand and value and nourish her. And I I don't know. I can't say this. Uh, I I don't think this is heresy. I think the principle works both ways. That wife, live with your husband in an understanding way so that your prayers are not hindered. And so some of you ladies are saying, why is God not answering my prayers? I don't know. But one place where you can start is to say, are you living with your husband in a way that says you understand him? So anytime we bring two human beings together in a relationship, it is going to be difficult. We've got to learn how to understand one another. I love my wife. She is amazing, but she is really weird in some ways. She keeps everything. We moved into our house 11 years ago. We still have all the moving boxes because we might move someday, okay? They take up half the garage. Like, I can't park my car. It's got hail dents all over it because we might move someday in the future. She has 16,000 emails in her email box, inbox, okay? I've got about seven. (laughs) She likes things clean, wiped down, disinfected. I just like things neat. I don't care how clean they are. Just put it all in one pile. I don't want to deal with it, okay? And I look at her email sometimes, and I'm like, how do you live that way? Like, and I just have to go, God, I know you love my wife. I trust her to you. Deal with it. I can't, okay? And so... uh, And I'm just really difficult. She's much more easygoing. All these things. I have great friends, Alan and Amanda, who have a really, really great marriage, but they are polar opposite to one another. She is the epitome of what a stereotypical woman would be like. He is the epitome of what a stereotypical man would be like. And only like God would do, he brings the two of them together. And so they're talking one day, and she's all emotional. And it's like, Alan, you've got to learn to understand me. I am a delicate flower. A delicate flower. What does that mean? And what am I? Says, you are a vicious lawnmower that destroys delicate <laughs> flowers. <laughs> and so Alan and Amanda, Scott and Kristen, every single one of us, if you are in a relationship, we've got to learn how to live with one another in an understanding way. That means I study my wife, I spend time with her, I ask her questions, we date each other, we embrace our differences, we put the phone down and we talk. I want to live with her in an understanding way. 
So I deal with my selfishness. I live with her in an understanding way. Third is that I make my marriage my message. So whether you know this or not, your relationship, your marriage communicates a message to the world. And I submit, it's one of my soapboxes, that part of the reason why so many young couples choose not to get married, why they choose to move in with each other, why they choose to delay marriage until further on in life is because they look at the rest of the world, they look at us married folks, and they say, I don't, I don't want that. Why don't I just choose to, to move in or choose to not ever get married? I certainly don't want that. And so we've got to realize, whether you know it or not, your marriage communicates a message to the world. And so what message does it communicate? It might be like this couple that struggles just with contempt with each other. They can't even look at one another. They're not arguing. They just, just backs turn to one another. Okay, or maybe you're, you're like this couple. This is what I want to be like. It's just happy and love. Life is so good, all I can do is jump on the bed and hold hands. Okay, next, you might be like the couple that's not back-to-back, but you're, you're butting heads and you're, you're not punching each other, but everything is an argument. Everything is a fight. There's just arguing and arguing and arguing. Or you're like this guy who should probably be playing in the NBA. You're young and in love and carefree. You might be disengaged like this next couple where even though you're near one another, you're not fighting, you're not arguing, you just couldn't care about the other one. She's watching TV and guys like we're always doing, we're praying while she's checked out, right? (laughs) And sometimes we're just silly and fun. It's one of my favorite pictures. I, I just love this. I want to be like that couple. They just look so happy. Like, I want that. I don't want the other things. Because we got to remember that people are looking at us. If you are a a proclaimed, professed follower of Jesus Christ, and people know that about you, they want to know what your marriage is like. You are, like uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And sometimes we live our lives and the saltiness has lost its saltiness. And there's a light that should be proclaiming Christ to the world, but it's hidden or it's distorted because we're giving off a a wrong message of what marriage is. See, just because I'm a marriage pastor doesn't mean I'm the only one that should have a good marriage. The world is watching us. If you profess and proclaim to trust Christ and follow Christ, The world sees your marriage, and your marriage is a reflection of who you say that you're giving your life to. And so what kind of message does your marriage communicate? Fourth is I want to play good offense and defense in my marriage. So recently I was studying the book of Nehemiah, a great story. Nehemiah is the the cupbearer to the king in Persia. God's people are in Israel to take before he's cupbearer, God's people are in Israel, taken into captivity into Assyria and Babylon. Fast forward, you know, uh, some years, and there's Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Back in Israel, the walls are torn down. God's people aren't there. God puts this vision, this burden on Nehemiah to go back to God's land, to Israel, and to rebuild the walls and reestablish the nation there. 
And in that time, in a miraculous way, God gives him permission to go back and rebuild the wall. He and a team build it in 54 days, I think is the number of days they rebuild the wall. But along the way, they face some opposition. They faced opposition from neighboring countries, from people that had taken over the land that said, your nation is a joke. Why are you wasting your time rebuilding the wall? They also faced opposition from, from God's own people that said, God has forgotten us. He doesn't care. There's no point in rebuilding this wall. But Nehemiah continues to, be, to uh, lead this team to rebuild the wall. And it goes on, it says in, in Nehemiah 4, that there are some people there who are defending the city. They've got their, the bow, the shield, the rod. They're doing everything they can to protect against the attacks. And then some people are actually rebuilding the wall. They're taking the, the brick. They're putting down the mud. They're putting down another brick. They're slowly building up the wall. They're rebuilding the wall around Israel. And so most of the people are either doing this or that. Some are defending. Some are building. But in Nehemiah 4, 16 through 17, it says, From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, building the wall. Half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on a wall. It says, Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way, okay, so there's some group that are not just defending and not just building, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And so some people were so burdened, cared so much that they didn't just defend or didn't just build. They built with one hand and defended with the other. And I read that in one of those God moments. I was like, that is a picture of marriage. That we are to be people who build and strengthen and fortify at the same time we're protecting against the attacks from the outside. And so how do we do that? We build the wall by spending time in God's word. We build the wall, we build our marriage by praying with our spouse, by going on date nights, by communicating, by being reminded about what God is about in life and in marriage in general. We communicate with one another. We work proactively. At the same time, because we don't live in this bubble, this isolated world, we know that there are attacks on us, that there are people who are trying to tear us down, that there's an enemy who wants to destroy my marriage. We know that there are times when we're going to fall short, and we're not just going to build. Now we're going to have to respond. We're going to have to deal with the consequences of, of broken trust. There are times when, when I'm going to fall short and I'm going to have to confess and ask for forgiveness with my spouse. And so I've got to respond sometimes. I've got to be proactive the others. But I cannot choose to just be one or be the other. We've got to consistently work on our marriage in a proactive way, also reacting when we fall short. It is like those little guys that play in a foosball game. Okay, I don't know what you call the, the field in foosball. A pitch is the... British way to say soccer field. I don't know what we call it here, but foosball, there's a table, two goals. You've got some of the people, you know, there's people in the middle and you twist them and you turn them. And some of them look like they're more to defend the goal. Others look like they're trying to score more on the other person's goal. But every single one of those people in a foosball game plays both offense and defense. And that's what we're called to be in marriage is to be people who play both good offense and good defense, who defend against the enemy while also trying to score and be on the offensive. This is a big deal, guys. Okay? 
Marriage is the best picture that we have of God's love for the church. It's a picture of his covenant, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, unending love. And when you say I do to your spouse, when you vow to love and to cherish, you are agreeing to love them in the same type of way that Christ loves us, the way that he demonstrated his love towards us. And the reason this matters is God's glory is at stake and it matters because people are watching. For me, there are no people who are watching more closely than these four boys. Duncan, Drew, Carson, and Lincoln. Goofy, smelly, loud, obnoxious, lovable. They're not getting a better picture of marriage from culture, from TV, from books they'll read, from friends they watch, from a sermon they hear on Sunday, from a message they get in their youth group. Their greatest picture of marriage comes from the way that I love and value and cherish their mom and the way that she loves and values and cherishes me. I don't want them to grow up with the wrong picture of marriage. I don't want culture to inform it. I don't want their friends to inform it. I want God's word to inform it, and I want my marriage to inform it. It's a big deal. So what are you doing to cherish and value your spouse, your fiance, your boyfriend, your girlfriend? What are you doing to help your friends cherish the one that they say they love and have committed to in marriage? We pray, and then we will transition from there. So God, thank you so much for your beautiful, perfect design of marriage. God, thank you for the ways that we are challenged in your word that you allow us to read and hold in our hands and on our phones and just all around us that we have your word to inform the way that we live and the way that we love, the way that we cherish, the way that we value. God, help us, every single one of us, whether single, married, engaged, single again, wherever we are, that we would be people who would deal with our selfishness, who would realize that the reason we fight is not the world's fault, it's not anyone's fault, it's not my spouse's fault, it's my selfishness. Help me deal with my selfishness. Help me, help us to live with our spouse in a way that shows that we understand them so that we can build intimacy with them and with you. God, I pray for the message that each of our relationships communicates to the world. I pray that it would be a picture of love, of selflessness of joy and not the other stuff that we often see around us. And God, I pray that we would learn how to proactively work and build our marriage while at the same time responding when we fall short. Thank you for demonstrating your love to us in your son, Jesus, what he accomplished on our behalf through the cross. And thank you for marriage, for the picture that it is intended to be of your love for us. We love you in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. stand with us as we continue in this time of worship um, and our heart and prayer for you is that you would know the love of Christ so uh, whether you're with us this morning and you know Jesus or this is your first time to ever interact with the church and maybe all of this feels super weird to you the fact that 